I've got two history degrees and a law degree, so you're all set for an argumentative presentation. This is my most important book, uh, and probably my best one, The Myth of the Lost Cause, uh, Why the South Started the Civil War and Why the North Won the Civil War. Uh, I say it's important because it goes beyond the mere military aspects of the Civil War and gets into the much more controversial area of what was America like going into the Civil War, why was there a secession and a confederacy, et cetera, issues which we are still, deal still dealing with in this country today. And um, I think it's very important that we go back and look at the evidence from the time, contemporary evidence. So I don't put a lot of uh, faith in anything said after about 1866 about why there was a war, because people were quickly getting into a defensive mode, um, and the arguments have gone back and forth for almost 160 years. I think we need to go back and look at what actually happened at that time and try to discard what people have argued since. Let's just go back and look at, and look at the evidence. Okay, what was the myth of the lost cause? Myth of the lost cause was a doctrine created by ex-Confederates to justify having fought the Civil War, having seceded, having formed the Confederacy, and having fought the Civil War. And if you think about it, in about 1866, when Pollard wrote The Lost Cause, from that time on, it wasn't too great an argument to say that, well, we in the South uh, went, to, went to war, we left the Union and went to war, uh, in order to defend slavery. It just didn't justify uh, the death of 240,000 um, Confederate soldiers, uh, which is probably only a start in totaling up the, the death toll in the South, uh, because we now know that there were probably at least 750,000 North and South who died as a result of the Civil War. So there was quite a movement to try to justify what happened because the South was in ruins. All the cities were pretty much smokestacks, and uh, the countryside had been decimated, uh, and the major ins social institution of the South, slavery had been destroyed. So, and, and, and it's pretty clear that it took the South maybe about 100 years to make up for the economic and social losses of, of what happened during that time period. So we had people like, uh, William Nelson Pendleton, a totally incompetent general, uh, Jubal Early, uh, a, moderate, uh, a moderately competent general, Reverend J. William Jones, and some others spent their lifetimes from 1870 to 1900 creating the myth of the lost cause doctrine. And it's, it's really, I think over time, it is, it's been called a myth by people who disagreed with it. Um, and uh, however, one must recognize that the myth of the lost cause really, I think, is the most, has been the most successful propaganda campaign in American history because it has shaped our views of the Civil War. And I find this all over the country, speaking to roundtables over the last 20 years, um, that doctrine has had a big impact. Now, what is that doctrine? Okay, it's fairly simple. Basically, uh, the explanation under the myth of the lost cause is that um, Slavery was a very good practice. It benefited both the whites and the blacks, 
and it gave blacks an, an opportunity to perform at the highest levels of which they were capable of performing, and they were taken care of by their benevolent masters and mistresses. Um, <clears throat> beyond that, there's a strange little twist that comes in, and that is sort of a zinger against the North, saying that, oh, you know, by the way, the Civil War was not necessary to end slavery because it was going to go away on its own within a reasonable period of time. Uh, and, and so the war wasn't necessary, slavery was going to go away on its own. Then the doctrine gets to the key $64,000 issue, which is what caused the Civil War. And the myth of the lost cause has had its biggest impact in this area because the myth says it was all about states' rights. It was the individual states wanting to protect their rights against a centralized government. And so that has been picked up on, and um, uh, when we have disputes about Confederate monuments or particularly the Confederate battle flag, a lot of times it is stated as a fact that the war was all about states' rights and not at all about slavery. Okay, beyond that, the doctrine says that the South never had a chance to win the war, did the best it could with what it had, and that it produced one of the greatest military leaders in history in the person of Robert E. Lee. And then on the contrary side, um, because it pushed Lee so strongly and really created a mini-god of the religion of the myth of the lost cause in Robert E. Lee. And you will find a fair number of authors who get into terms such as uh, Gethsemane and blessing the children, etc. Uh, Lee is, is literally presented as a Christ-like figure in the more uh, uh, deeply moving uh, versions of the myth of the lost cause. Now, there were two problems in pushing Lee ahead. You had to deal with two issues. One is he lost Gettysburg, or did he lose Gettysburg? See, the myth says Lee didn't lose Gettysburg, James Longstreet lost Gettysburg. So the myth clearly says it's all James Longstreet's fault. One other issue is that Lee did end up surrendering to this fellow named Ulysses Grant. And so the myth takes off after Grant and says that he was nothing compared to Lee. In fact, he was a drunk and he was a butcher. He butchered his own troops and that was the only way that he won the war. And then related to that, and this is sort of a, a modern spin-off a bit, um, the terminology is used of total war. And so the myth comfortably says that uh, the North only won by use of total war. So that gives you a brief summary of where the myth came from, what it says, and I think you can quickly see that, gee, I've heard a lot about that, or that is the way it was taught to me in school all across the country over the last 50 years, or actually 150 years. And so that's why I say it's very important to look at this doctrine and I will stand here and give you my views, and I'm not saying you've got to believe what I'm saying. All I ask you to do is you consider the evidence, you do enough of your own reading and research, and reach your own conclusions, but I think these are important issues that we need to think about in addition to just looking at who won the Battle of Chickamauga and why, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, look at the bigger picture, because I believe that uh, understanding of the Civil War 
which probably was the most important event in American history, is critical to today dealing with current issues. Okay, having said all that, let me jump back to the beginning. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on how great an institution slavery was. Um, I think we do need to remember that it was um, enforced um, by brutality, by killings when necessary, that it involves a very frequent number of rapes by masters of, of slaves, as evidenced by the significant population of mulattoes throughout the South, many of whom look suspiciously like their masters. And I'll just give you a, a little, this is my personal gut feeling, is that um, the women of the South knew what was going on. They were not allowed to speak out against it. The men felt guilty about it, and they created this myth of uh, Southern womanhood and put Southern women on a pedestal trying to make up for what was going on in the slave quarters. So it's a very nasty part of slavery. Um, but also, let me point out, one of the real cruel aspects of slavery was the fact that there was no recognition of family units. There was no slave marriages that were recognized legally, and the family units were non-existent because you got down to the property aspects, you got down to the money. And any child was owned by whoever owned the mother. And, and so uh, what we have is a long, sad history of family breakups, assuming there was a family. And there were, there were tendencies to have that, uh, an effort to try to have family relationships. But take this under consideration. Between 1790 and 1860, the 70 years before the Civil War, during that period of time, about one million individual slaves were taken away from their environment and shipped from the northern part of the South into the deep South to form the basis for the cotton industry. And so Virginia, um, Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, Maryland, northern uh, North Carolina, those areas had to some extent been farmed out, the land exhausted by tobacco production. There was a surplus of slaves. So slaves became a money-making commercial product. And during those 70 years, one million of them were sold into the Deep South, usually one by one, torn away from the family they knew and sold into the Deep South. Uh, that was the practice, and uh, it says a lot about uh, how genteel uh, the institution of slavery was. Now, the next issue I want to touch on is the contention that slavery would have gone away on its own without some kind of blow up, such as the Civil War. Uh, I don't think so. Let me quote you from the Richmond Examiner in the early 1850s. Quote, it is all a hallucination to suppose that we are ever going to get rid of slavery or that it will ever be desirable to do so. It is a thing we cannot do without that is righteous, profitable, and permanent, and that belongs to Southern society as inherently, intrinsically, and durably as the white race itself. 
Southern men should act as if the canopy of heaven were inscribed with a covenant in letters of fire, that the Negro is here and here forever, is our property and ours forever, and is never to be emancipated, is to be kept in hard work and a rigid subjection all his days. Okay, um, just a little bit of doctrine. Now, but let me get down to what I think is really telling, and that is a little bit of financial information about the value of slavery as an asset in 1860. It's lovely that we had the 1860 census one year before the Civil War started because it, it gives us a snapshot of America. Well, these numbers I found to be unbelievable. In 1860, the total wealth in America, take all the property, uh, farming equipment, farms, houses, factories, take all the assets in America were worth a total of about $16.2 billion, $16.2 billion. Now, at the same time, 1860, the slave population, which was obviously only in the South, South of Mason-Dixon line, 15 slave states, the slave population at that time was 3.953 million, so basically 4 million slaves were in the South. So the question is, well, how much were they worth and what was the percentage of the national wealth? They were worth an estimated $3 billion, $3 billion. Now, the entire uh, property value, as I said, was $16 billion plus. So slaves represented 19% of the national wealth. Now, the South only owned about 40% of the national wealth. So if we round it off, the South had 40% of the national wealth, but half of that was tied up in slaves. Half of that was tied up in slaves. Now, who is going to voluntarily give up half of their wealth? Uh, okay, so let's move on to compensated emancipation. Who's going to pay the slave owners to give up the slaves? Well, Abraham Lincoln tried it. Uh, during the first year and a half of the war, he was really, really concerned about keeping the border states Delaware, Maryland, Missouri, and Kentucky. Those are the four slave states that had not seceded. He wanted them to stay in the Union, especially Kentucky. Very, very critical. And so he began exploring the possibility of paying masters to emancipate their slaves. And Delaware seemed to be easy pickings. There were less than 2,000 slaves there. Lincoln, I think, figured, we have his calculations, that it was about the cost of about 12 days of war would pay for every slave in Delaware. So he met with Delawareans and he met with representatives of all the border states to push the issue of compensated emancipation. No buyers, no takers, no takers at all. Okay, so people, half their wealth in the South was invested in slaves. They weren't interested in selling them. Um, uh, they, they, they rejected that out of hand. And, and so uh, where is this movement going to come from that's going to end slavery without some kind of a social explosion. And um, I, would, I would say that um, we also have to look at what happened after the Civil War. And that tells us a little bit about where things were going to go because actually um, uh, we had the assassination of Lincoln. And, and let me just, this is a favorite little issue I like to touch on. You often hear it said 
that, boy, John Wilkes Booth shooting Abraham Lincoln really was a big blow to the South. Big blow to the South. Because presumably Lincoln would have been more gracious in, in, in approaching the South than the radicals in Congress. And I say that is absolutely false. Lincoln's assassination was a death blow to African Americans in the South. And it opened the door for the racist, slave-owning, hard-drinking Andrew Johnson to do his damage within two years of Lincoln's death. He pardoned virtually every, every Confederate officer and, and, and uh, office holder. And those fellows were back in control of the South within the diary state by state, within three to 10 years after the Civil War, the South was right back where it was in the hands of the people who were the big promoters of slavery. So that uh, they had no motive and made no motion toward uh, compensating blacks for their service, freeing them, providing them with 20 acres and a mule, et cetera. All hopes that the blacks had including some of them had been given 20 acres and a mule offshore islands in South Carolina. That was all taken away from them. That was all taken away. So uh, uh, with the final withdrawal of Union troops in 1877 from the three remaining states where they were stationed in the South, basically left so white Southerners to take control of the black situation and deal with it. And what did they do? They deprived blacks of, of virtually all rights, no equal education, uh, no right to vote, et cetera, uh, no access to public accommodations, et cetera, oh, for about 100 years after the Civil War. And more importantly, and this is an area I'm doing reading on, but I need to do a lot more reading, and I urge you to do so too. There are now lots of books coming out studying the life of blacks in the South from the end of the Civil War to World War II. At least it goes up that far. First thing is that I think it's fair to say that there was quasi-slavery in the South during that period of time. But a typical black in the South, situations were not that much different than they were under slavery. In fact, in one aspect, they were much worse. Under slavery, uh, a slave had value, an average of about $1,000, so that slaves were not that often killed because somebody was losing a lot of money. But after the Civil War, slaves were no longer, by virtue of constitutional amendment, worth a dollar amount to a owner, to an owner. They had no owners. So that what we see is a pattern extending in, in large numbers, at least through the 1920s, and not halting after that, of lynchings all over the South of slaves, a black's life was not worth what it had been worth when the black was a slave. Um, and then another, another interesting little aspect of all of this is the three-fifths clause of the Constitution. Uh, before the Civil War, uh, blacks counted, black slaves counted each, every five counted as three people for determining Southern representation, and for determining anybody's representation in Congress, but most of these people were located in the South. After the Civil War, three-fifths clause goes away, and every black is considered the same as a white for purposes of counting up who gets what representation. So what happened is that the South uh, became overrepresented in the United States Congress by 40% 
compared to before the war. So that is why you had a long period from 1865 until um, after World War II, until after, after Roosevelt, I would say, until Eisenhower came in. You had Southern Democratic domination of Congress, uh, ironically stronger than it was uh, before the Civil War, which is pretty hard to believe because it was very strong before the Civil War. Okay, uh, but talking about how were blacks used, they were used on chain gangs throughout the South. I mean, we remember seeing old pictures and movies, of, et cetera, but this was a systematic effort. Blacks were arrested uh, for 90 years after the Civil War in the South without any viable charge. They were just charged with vagrancy, sheriff signs, uh, and um, someone comes in and pays the fees or the bail or whatever, and then takes possession of this black, usually a black man, and that individual is sent off and used to build the industrial South. The South recovered on the back of blacks who, who did the mining, they did the timber industry, they did iron, uh, they did coke, they did steel, um, you name the industry in the South, and there were massive prison camps, really concentration camps of blacks, and a lot of blacks never got out of that. They were in those and worked till they died, and the conditions were abhorrent. So, uh, so one of my answers to this issue about was slavery going to go away on its own is that, hell no, it didn't. It's quasi-significant, quasi-slavery in the United States, at least up to World War II, demonstrating that the economic interest in having cheap or free labor overcame all principles of humanity. Okay, that gets us up to why did southern states secede in 1860 and 61? Why did they form the Confederacy? And then why did they institute war against the Union? Well, I said the propaganda effect has been great. Here's John Keegan. John Keegan is a, was, was a Brit, famous military historian, wrote about 20 books. And uh, in one book called Intelligence and War, he made this offhand comment. He said, the Southern people, however, were resolute in their determination to preserve states' rights, the legal issue over which they had declared separation. So we, get, we could buy in in lots of places, and we need to take a hard look. Let's go back to 1860, 1861, and see what was going on. First thing, uh, I have some demographic evidence. Um, all the numbers are in the book uh, to show you state by state the situation. Uh, the situation being, in the states that succeeded, what was the percentage of black population, percentage of slave population, and what percentage of white families owned slaves? Well, interestingly, there are three big blocks of southern states. First is the seven states who seceded before Lincoln was even sworn in and formed the Confederacy before Lincoln even became president. So they are the key focus, I think. And in those states, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. Okay, in those seven states, the average population of slaves was 47% of the population. So it's almost one to one, it's half the population is slaves. And interestingly, 37% of 
of white families own slaves, 37%. A lot of times you hear, well, these people, not many people had an interest in slavery. And, and numbers are used like, you know, in 1860, only 1% of Americans owned slaves? Or another one is that only 5% of Southerners owned slaves? Well, if you look at 37% of the families, see, the problem with those earlier stats is, look, if, if a man owns 10 slaves, and he's got a wife and eight kids, that's 10 people who benefit from slavery. So you don't just count one, you count all of them. Plus something I haven't mentioned, and that is that Slavery was not just an economic institution. Slavery was a social institution of oppression and white supremacy. And uh, so that no matter what the numbers tell us, and I think the numbers tell us an awful lot, you always have to keep in mind things like, okay, so 63% of white families in the South did not own slaves, but ask yourself, you're a poor white farmer, what's your goal in life? Your goal in life is to make enough money to buy a slave. Because if you own a slave, you are now elevated in social status. Plus, all those poor white farmers spread across the South could always say to themselves, well, you know, under the law and societal practices, I am superior legally, economically, etc." to four million of my brethren here in the South. So I feel pretty good about that. So you did not have to own slaves in order to have an interest in trying to own slaves or an interest in keeping in place a system of white supremacy. Now, as you know, after Lincoln, after Fort Sumter and the Confederate firing on Fort Sumter, uh, Lincoln called for troops to put down the rebellion. Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina also left the Union. Okay, so they're the second batch of states to go. Now their slave population was only 29% and only 25% of the families in those states owned slaves. So they were not, if I'll, I'll use the term loosely, they were not as black as the Deep South and, and they were not as quick to get out but they eventually did when push came to shove which side are you going to be on in the war that has now started. And then finally the four border states, who were the other states in which slavery was legal, but chose not to leave the Union. In those states, slave population was 14%, and 16% of families owned slaves. So you can see that the higher your percentage of slaves, and the higher your percentage of family, white families owning slaves, the more likely it is you're going to leave the Union, and that you're going to leave earlier. Okay. Some people don't like statistics for a variety of reasons, um, but let's look then at the very, very best evidence of why these states seceded and why they formed a confederacy. Let's look at what they told us. When they left, they wrote secession resolutions, uh, or they had a document accompanying the resolution saying, here's why we're doing what we're doing. Okay, just give you a little sample here uh, the book has quotes from, from all the early seceding states. South Carolina, of course, went first, complained about northern states and federal failure to return fugitive slaves in accordance with the Constitution and federal law. Quote, but an increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery has led to a disregard of their obligations and the laws of the general government have ceased to effect the objects of the Constitution. 
may not be aware of it, it should be, the Constitution itself had a fugitive slave clause provision in it. And then that was put in federal law in the early 1790s and then strengthened again in, in 1850. So this is one of the big complaints of all the seceding states is that their fugitive slaves were not being returned uh, as effectively as they wanted them to be, either by other states or by the federal government. The implication is that the federal government has got to do more. Now that's not exactly a states' rights argument. Uh, okay, it complained that northern states had condemned slavery as sinful. Northerners had elected as president a man who had said government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. Uh, they even criticized northern states, some northern states, for allowing free blacks to vote, if you can believe that. Uh, so far from respecting individual states' rights to carry out their own practices, such as the voting, uh, South Carolinians wanted to compel the federal government and other state governments to enforce slaveholders' rights. Second state out was Mississippi. Great record there because the governor issued a statement saying he was calling a special session of the legislature asking them to convene a secession convention. So we have all kinds of statements at different levels uh, indicating why Mississippi was considering secession. Um, the governor said, the existence or the abolition of African slavery in the southern states is now up for final settlement. Uh, the legislature then convened, and they did this actually before South Carolina had even seceded. They complained the North had defied the Constitution's fugitive slave provision, interfered with slavery, enticed slaves to, free, to flee, agitated against slavery, sought to exclude slavery from the territories, and opposed the admission of more slave states. That's a whole bunch of little clauses. Each clause has the word slave or slavery in it. Um, the legislature convened the convention. The secession convention unanimously agreed to secede. And the secession convention said, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions, and by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. Da, 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 da. There was no choice left us but submission to the mandates of abolition or a dissolution of the union whose principles had been subverted to work out our ruin. Um, and finally, the Mississippi Secession Convention said, we must either submit to degradation and the loss of property worth four billions of money, or we must secede from the union framed by our fathers to secure this as well as every other species of property. Uh, one searches in vain for arguments being made about, this was about tariffs. No, that was 30 years before, thank you. Uh, or states' rights. You do not see the phrase states' rights in these documents. In fact, if I may summarize, from all these documents we have from the states that seceded and formed the Confederacy is that, is that uh, uh, the rights they were talking about were, were basically threefold. They said, we as a state have a right to have slavery, 
We have a right to extend slavery into the territories. And if you disagree with either one or two, we have the right to secede. That was it. It was all slave-based, all slave-based. This is their own words. So if anyone says to you that all was about states' rights, say, would you please find me where at this time, in 60 and 61, these people said th that it was about anything other than slavery. And they won't have anything for you. OK. Um, I've got other states quoted uh, throughout the book. Let's move on to other evidence. So far, we have demographics, and we have the secession statements themselves. A um, very important thing has come out in the last 10 years or so. Um, there's a book called Apostles of Disunion by Charles Dew, who is a native southerner whose who's, uh, great-great-great-grandfather was greatly involved in, in the, the southern push for secession and, and a defender of slavery. And he's, he's published a book which tells us about these early seceding states designating delegates, little mini ambassadors, to go to other states to convince them to join the Confederacy. Now, the arguments that they made to the other states tells us an awful lot about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And this whole book is filled with letters to governors and to state legislatures, officials in other slave states. By the way, there was no effort made by these states to convert or bring into the Confederacy any state that wasn't a slave state. They only lobbied in slave states. And what did they lobby about? Just slavery. The same kind of language I quoted from the secession documents was the kind of thing they put in their, in their letters and uh, uh, speeches, et cetera, to all the other slave states trying to convince them to join the Confederacy. Now, they were in a big hurry because the early seceding states did not want to end up the way South Carolina had ended up in 1832 when we had the nullification crisis and Andy Jackson caught South Carolina hanging out there by itself and sent 20,000 Union troops down in ships to say, uh, I think you will continue to collect the tariffs of the United States. And uh, if you don't, um, I'm prepared to use military force. So they, they wanted to have safety in numbers and so they were very interested in getting other states to join them as quickly as possible. And uh, the, the entire pitch was slavery, slavery-related, just as the secession documents. Um, uh, it got a little bit more down and dirty because these documents were not quite the level of importance of the secession resolution. So they got carried away. And you will see a lot of extreme statements, basically very racist statements. What they got into was, this is not only a matter of economics and a matter of, of uh, our rights under the Constitution, fugitive slaves, et cetera, and, uh, but they said, if slavery is ended, uh, there will not only be, slaves will not only be, blacks will be, uh, have political rights, but they'll also have social and economic rights. And speaking of social rights, basically, do you want your daughter uh, being threatened by having free blacks all over the South. And, and uh, so it, it really got pretty nasty, uh, and, and the book is, is informative on that. But the point is, it was all about slavery and, and white supremacy. Uh, when I've used the word slavery right up to now, and as I use it throughout, 
always think it's not just slavery, it's slavery slash white supremacy, because we're talking about an economic and a social system uh, of oppression. So we have the outreach to the other states. We have a few famous statements by Confederate leaders at this time. Jefferson Davis, when he resigned from the United States Senate in December of 1860, said this whole thing is the fault of the Northerners, who uh, abolitionists in particular, who've created havoc, and they're going, they're attacking our primary social institution, and to defend that, we have to secede, and so I'm leaving, thank you very much. The most famous statement by a Confederate leader was by Alexander Stevens of Georgia, Vice President of the Confederacy, who in February of 1861 in Savannah, Georgia, delivered the Cornerstone Speech. It's called the Cornerstone Speech because Vice President Stevens said, um, the uh, cornerstone of the Confederacy is slavery. That's pretty clear. From my general reading, I was aware of that. Until I got his full speech and read it, I was not aware that he had gone a lot further. And what Stevens said was, you know, Jeff Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers were wrong. They made a bad mistake. They said all men are created equal. But the Confederacy stands for the principle that all white men are created equal and blacks are here to serve us. So he made that very clear. Now that was 1861. A few years later, mid-1860s, uh, as the Confederacy was going down the toilet, um, or had already, 64 to 66, somewhere in that time frame, uh, Thaddeus Stevens was asked about, didn't you say that, that this was all about slavery, and now you're saying it's about states' rights? And Thaddeus Stevens said, oh, I, I was misquoted. I was misquoted. It was one of the world's longest misquotes. Uh, and the problem was that he'd given the same speech in Atlanta where you had a totally different reporter reporting on the, mark, on the remarks. So we have the leaders themselves telling the people what the Confederacy stood for. And it was all about the slavery and white supremacy issues. Now, um, the Confederacy's constitution. Okay, what the Confederates did uh, in establishing the Confederacy and quickly getting a constitution, they took the US Constitution and then added to it. And what they added was all kinds of provisions to protect slavery where it existed forever and to make it clear that there was a right to take slaves into territories, which was what the whole election of 1860 was about, uh, and, um, um, and to protect slavery in the territories forever and also to protect slave trade among, among those states and territories. So a lot of add-ons to protect slavery. No real big surprise there, just reconfirms everything we've discussed up to this point. But here is what I really find interesting, is that there's a supremacy clause in the, federal, in the Confederate Constitution, very similar to the one in the US Constitution, and specifically that supremacy clause said that in the Confederacy, the supreme law of the land is the Confederate Constitution, and Confederate laws that would be passed by Confederate Congress in Richmond. And that it says state judges are bound by those even if state law is to the contrary. Now that doesn't sound to me like a real strong push for states' rights. It sounds like a total takeover by Richmond 
And basically, it sounds like the southern states were willing to essentially change masters as long as the new master supported slavery. Okay, um, there's one other piece of uh, immediately contemporary uh, evidence, 1860, 1861, as the secession was going on, as the Confederacy was being formed, and that is the compromise efforts that were being made. The nation saw that a real crisis was developing, that civil war was becoming likely, and the national and state leaders took actions, made statements, but mainly they, they took actions to try to promote certain um, uh, actions to be taken to avoid civil war. It seems to me that settlement efforts at that very time, as contemporary, as contemporaneous as you can get, would tell us a lot about what was this dispute about? And, and quite frankly, I think the American people knew what the dispute was about. The election of 1860 was about virtually nothing but extension of slavery into the territories or not. The nation was in turmoil about the slavery issue. And if we look at the settlement uh, prospects and settlement efforts, I think we can, uh, we can confirm that. Okay, um, first of all, it starts with President Buchanan's December 3, 1860 uh, final State of the Union, it wasn't called that at that time, State of the Union address to Congress in which our beloved James Buchanan from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I live, uh, said, now remember he was a Democratic president, kept in power through Southern votes, um, and he said, the long-continued and intemperate interference of the northern people with the question of slavery in the southern states has at length produced its natural effects. The different sections of the Union are now arrayed against each other, and the time has arrived so much dreaded by the father of the country when hostile geographical parties have been formed. It cannot be denied that for five and 20 years, the agitation of the North against slavery has been incessant. Uh, goes on and gives examples. And then he says, here's his proposed solution, as I recall. How easy would it be for the American people to settle the slavery question forever and to restore peace and harmony to this distracted country? They and they alone can do it. All that is necessary to accomplish the object and all for which the slave states have ever contended is to be let alone and permitted to manage their domestic institutions in their own way. As sovereign states, they and they alone are responsible before God and the world for the slavery existing among them. For this, the people of the North are more, not more responsible and have no more right to interfere with similar uh, institutions in Russia or in Brazil. And then uh, he went on to propose that there be some constitutional amendments to protect slavery. And that started a trend because during the months, the months of December 1860 and January 1861, there was a committee of 31 consisting of uh, a uh, congressperson, a congressman in those days, a congressman and a senator, or a senator from each state, from 31 states out of the 33. Uh, and these national leaders, these congressional leaders, uh, worked for a whole two months trying to come up with solutions to solve this crisis to avoid a civil war. And they came up with what were called the Crittenden Amendments. John Crittenden, senator from Kentucky, um, following in the footsteps of the great compromiser Henry Clay, was the leader of this effort. He was a strong unionist and yet a southern sympathizer 
but he really wanted to, to resolve things. So he got buy-in, and the Crittenden Amendments were proposed to Congress, um, and they went nowhere. Uh, but what they, what they consisted of tells us what the dispute was about. The Crittenden Amendments recommended the following. Constitutional amendments to extend the Missouri Compromise free slave line to the Pacific, recognize and protect slavery in existing slave states and all present and future territories, prohibit Congress from interfering with interstate um, slave transportation or transport of slaves to territories that allow slavery. Um, Congress would not be allowed to abolish slavery in D.C. unless many conditions were met. Congress could not free slaves of federal officials because they were brought into D.C. Congress could not abolish slavery in places with exclusive federal jurisdiction within states, such as a federal reservation within a state, within a slave state. And furthermore, and this is my favorite, the last of the Crittenden Amendments said, Congress could not pass any future constitutional amendments allowing any of the above or authorizing congressional interference, interference with or abolishment of slavery. So in other words, you had a whole series of proposed constitutional amendments with no purpose other than to uh, preserve slavery in the slave states and the territories forever. And then the clincher was, this could never be changed. You could never amend the Constitution to undo any of these pro-slavery constitutional amendments. Um, there was, in the following month, February 1861, a conference in Washington for a whole month involving all the states that were still in the Union. So now you had the congressional leaders have their say. Now it went down to states. And so most of the states attended this Washington Peace Conference. And lo and behold, they came up with constitutional amendments. I won't, I won't tell you what they were because they were virtually identical to the Crittenden Amendments. So everybody at the, in the leadership positions in the federal government and the state government were all in agreement this was all about slavery, and here's the way we're going to resolve this. Um, there was a little-known convention called the Border Slave States Convention in late May of 1861, sort of a last gasp effort, and it was really only attended by Kentucky and Missouri, the two most important um, um, uh, and biggest border states at that time. And they, uh, and that, that convention was headed by John Crittenden, and so unsurprisingly, the recommendation was you ought to adopt the Crittenden Amendments to the Constitution. Uh, oh, the Kentucky delegates to that convention, and they were 12 out of the 17 delegates, very small little convention. The Kentucky delegates issued a separate statement to the people of Kentucky who were still on that on the fence as do we go Confederate, do we go Union? And uh, one little phrase, sort of an aside, in the Kentucky delegates report back to the people of Kentucky said, even slavery for which this wretched war was undertaken will be exterminated in the general ruin. So another little reinforcement about what people at the time thought was the cause of the um, of secession and the Confederacy and the Civil War. Now, I want to just mention, we don't have time to explore these in any detail at all. I just want to mention there are three things that I think occurred during the Civil War. So we're a little away from the secession itself. We're going in the next couple of years. And, and I, it seems to me that the Confederacy behaved in a way 
that indicated they were more interested in preserving slavery than they were in winning the Civil War. Just unbelievable. Okay, very quickly, in their diplomacy, they refused to assure England and France that at some point slavery would end. And that tells us, sheds light on that earlier issue about was slavery going away? No, it wasn't going away. They wouldn't even get the necessary support from Europe, which they really needed to win the war, uh, because they would not give in on the slavery, on the slavery issue. Uh, the second thing was POW exchanges. During the middle of the war, of course, Union started using black soldiers, and the Confederacy, specifically Davis and Lee, said, we will not exchange captured black Union soldiers. Now, first of all, a lot of black Union soldiers were shot down in cold blood as they tried to surrender, but the ones who were captured were treated like property, treated like slaves, or put back into slavery. They were not treated as prisoners of war. And as a result, the North stopped, uh, they gave warning, and then they stopped exchanges for a critical period from late 1863 until early 1865. Well, who gets hurt by that? The Confederates. Confederates are outnumbered about three and a half to one in white men of fighting age at the beginning of the war. As the war goes along, Confederates take a lot of casualties. They can't replace their casualties. So if you've got any kind of an exchange on a one-for-one, one, the South is a great beneficiary of it. They were willing to give up exchanges for a year and a half as their manpower was disappearing because they could not swallow the concept of treating uh, black soldiers as soldiers or as human beings. And then finally, uh, and this one is more controversial, but uh, I contend that the South uh, failed to take advantage of a massive resource it had, and that is in using its slaves as soldiers during the war. Now, there are isolated reports of soldiers here and there, et cetera, but I'll give you the clincher. The South, the, the Confederate Congress, did not legally approve of any use of blacks as soldiers until four weeks before Appomattox. And then it was a watered-down um, uh, proposal, not proposal, a watered-down legislative uh, uh, enactment which said that uh, under very limited conditions, blacks could serve in the Confederate Army if they had their owner's permission and the state's permission. And so nothing ever came of that. A couple hundred blacks marched in the Richmond area, and they weren't even given firearms. Uh, so. The South missed a big opportunity um, to use its slaves. And, and the arguments are there in the press, um, in, in the Confederate Congress, all over the South. The argument was made that we can't do that. We went to war to keep slavery. And if we let them to be soldiers, we're undermining our entire rationale for the war. And we're also undermining our entire rationale for slavery. Because if we let them do it and they succeed, they'll prove that they're capable of doing more than we have said they're capable of doing. So it seems to me there's a lot of evidence at the time of secession and during the war which points to slavery, slavery, and slavery. Okay, I'll give you one, one sentence summaries of the rest of my contentions. One is the South did have a chance to win the war. A lot of experts at the beginning of the war thought they would win by fighting the same kind of war that the colonials fought in the American Revolution. That is, don't try to, don't try to be a hero. Uh, don't get into major battles because you don't have the manpower to do it. And the South did not do that. 
Uh, under Lee's leadership, they did just the contrary and, and therefore uh, got pounded. Also keep in mind that the South only needed a tie. They had declared their independence, they had this massive area, and it had to be totally affirmatively conquered by the North. So the North had a horrendous burden of winning the war, in addition to which they had to do it in a time frame when the weaponry had switched so that uh, with all the new weapons and the widespread use of them, the advantage had gone over to the defense. The North had to attack in order to win. South did not, but they chose to attack anyway. Okay, we have, so that gets, to the, gets us to the Lee Grant question. We could go on forever about the Lee Grant question. Let me just tell you, my little favorite synopsis is this, and, and this is not my only basis, but I can give you a little statistical basis. During the course of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee commanded one army in one theater, which theater he lost, and to do so, he took 209,000 casualties. I've got tables in my books to show you where I got these numbers. 209,000 casualties. That's killed, wounded, missing, and captured. On the other hand, Ulysses Grant commanded five armies in three theaters, was a winner everywhere he went, and he won the war, and he fought a very similar number of battles to Lee, and Grant achieved everything that he did with 154,000 casualties. So Lee had 55,000 more casualties than Grant to fight in one theater, which he lost. So that's just one piece of evidence about Lee was, they were both very similar, they're both very aggressive, but Lee was aggressive for a side that didn't have to win, and he went on the attack, attack, attack again and again. Grant had to attack, because the North had the affirmative burden of attacking in order to win the war. And I mentioned total war. There's been allegations made. You still see a lot of people writing it. I think Ron White's biography of, of uh, Grant, that was his latest book, yeah, uh, uh, had something in there about, about the Union use of total war. Usually people point to Sherman in Georgia and the Carolinas, and they point to Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley and say, that's total war. Well, excuse me, that is not total war. Total war is uh, Russia, Japan, uh, Germany, World War I, World War II, where you go in and you have massive rapes and you have massive murders of defenseless civilians in, a large, in large numbers in a very systematic manner. The campaigns that were launched by the Union forces were very economically destructive, but they were also very noteworthy for the very, very few rapes and very few killings or murders. Very few people were raped and very few people were killed in any of those campaigns. So it was a horrific economic campaign to demonstrate to the South the power of the North and the inability of the Confederacy to defend their interests. But don't mistake, don't mistake total war with hard war. So I hope I've stimulated a few thoughts and encourage you to, to do a lot of your own research to get to the bottom of these issues so you can form your own well-informed opinions. And I thank you very much for your attention this evening.